This is the Road Trekking Podcast with your host, Jimmy James. It's a show about my trip from Ontario to British Columbia and back in a vintage 92 camper van, and I invite you to come along for the ride. Welcome to Episode 7, a conversation with my now good friend Brennan, where we discuss life in rural Saskatchewan, his incredibly interesting story, uh, the First Nations peoples, and we even chat about the little cat Tuxie that uh, took a shining to me while I was staying in town. He's the only guest so far that's provided his own intro music, and I really liked it, so I left it in, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. That's great. I love that. <laughs> and it fades out. <laughs> That's great. I love that. Nakoda Nation singer, so. Nakoda. Yeah. And is that the nation that you're a part of? Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I'm kind of a Nakoda citizen boy. Okay. So. Okay, I'm here with uh, Brennan in Fort Capel. A.K.A. Les Nesman. And- <laughs> Les Nesman is from WKRP in Cincinnati. Yeah, right. so. Les Nesman. And they're dropping the turkeys on yeah. the Thanksgiving yeah. giveaway. And they're flying. That's they're right. flying this time. They're flying, yeah. Um, and Fort Capel, it's about uh, 45 minutes northeast of uh, Regina. Yeah. Saskatchewan, for yeah. anybody that's listening. Um, I think maybe you could start off and just tell a little bit about, like, you have an interesting story, Brennan. Uh, all the places that you were when you were young and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, basically I was adopted out when I was a baby there and I was part of the six sixty scoop. So I grew up, uh, my adopted parents were, were white and they were a dentist and a registered nurse. So they chose to join an organization called QSO, which, uh, essentially sent them to underdeveloped nations throughout the world. Like, uh, Nigeria, Mozambique, Papua New Guinea. Um, so would that be like Red, the Red Cross or? No, they essentially, like as a dentist, you know, he'd go and perform uh, a dental practice for two years, like a two-year stint. Okay. So, but uh, once they got to Mozambique, um, they essentially de- uh, developed a program where they would bring Mozambicans to camp back to Canada and teach them how to be dentists. So once that program was established, then Mozambicans would be sent back to Mozambique and they would establish dentistry back rather than always having people come in. Like Mozambique was a socialist country, so a lot of Russians, Brazilians there. So instead of having all these foreigners coming into the country and doing their thing they would teach them how to be self-sufficient and oh i see in in this case dentistry so they're teaching them to go there or come to canada learn how to be dentists sent back to uh, mozambique and where they would teach others i see so it's it's my I guess parents have now retired, so they no longer do that, but the program still is ongoing, and it's kind of, I think, spread out to other, although Kiso doesn't exist anymore. Okay. So, 
So, but more of a community-based approach, like where you would take people who <clears throat> who live there, yeah, teach them. Yeah, you're making them self-sufficient. Yeah, right. Rather than just going there, doing your practice, yeah. and then just leaving. Then you leave no right. Sort of like lasting uh, impression. Give or, a man a fish. Yeah. Uh, you know, feed him for a day, teach a man to fish, and you can feed him for a lifetime. Yeah, exactly. So, right, yeah, it was out of the uh, University of Saskatchewan with this cooperation and funding of parts from the government of Canada. So, so yeah, so there's uh, doing all that traveling was uh, pretty interesting. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of these countries are really poor. Yeah. Mozambique, you know, at the time was was uh, at war, civil war, with the government and then also the rebels that were sponsored at the time with by South Africa. Because South Africa at the time was in apartheid, so they didn't want to have uh, Mozambique be a su- su- successful nation. Right. So they wanted to create chaos in Mozambique. So they gave weapons and money to the rebels just to keep that ongoing chaos. Wow. So... I can't remember how long the Civil War lasted, but it's over now, and, and Mozambique's actually getting more prosperous, though. Well, At the time, good. there's no grocery stores, no bread. Um, literally, you couldn't buy any groceries there. So everything, a lot of the food came from the sea because they're right on the Indian Ocean, so a lot of fishing and stuff like that and to feed themselves. So as a dentist, my dad, you know, you would bring home fragments of grenades and bullets and stuff that he had to take out of uh, soldiers' uh, faces and stuff like that. So wow, so yeah, so so it's not just about doing uh, fixing a cavity or something like that. No, it's, it's no. pretty serious. Yeah, dental surgery. Yeah, and then so okay, you lived in Mozambique and then you moved and you were in a, a couple of different countries. Well, well, Nigeria, then uh, Papua New Guinea, then Mozambique, then uh, we also traveled, you know, like on kind of a holiday where we went through a lot of Asian countries like Indonesia, Singapore, uh, Thailand, Hong Kong, and then into uh, China. Wow. And uh, when getting in China was kind of at the height of the communist yeah. thing where uh it was really difficult to get a visa for foreigners to enter Canada or enter China. So I remember at that time, if you don't travel second class because second on a train, because second class on a train is like essentially like wooden benches. So, and you travel for like a thousand kilometers overnight trips on a wooden bench. Oh my God. So for me, my brother, we slept underneath these wooden benches. So the next stop, my parents switched to first class. Yeah. Which would just almost just be regular church seat or regular train seats. Okay. So there's no like real fancy things. They were just regular train seats where yeah. it was clothed and a bit more padded and stuff like that. So, so I remember that quite vividly is because we had to sleep under these like church pews. For like two days. Wow. So it was quite a long trip. So it's not like the train's going fast either. So Yeah, yeah. So yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm, because at, at, the, at the time, you know, when we got to these countries, and since, since I'm Native American, Indigenous, 
they'd never heard of those in, in those countries. So they always called you Chinese or Asian or something like that. Okay. So they never heard of Native Americans over and over in these countries, right? So, so that's so, kind of my first experience. Like, well, because you couldn't make them understand because you don't, they'd never heard of yeah. Native Americans because like a lot of people learn because of movies and stuff like that. Well, over there in Mozambique, they don't even have TVs or anything like that. They can't watch movies. So they don't, they have no clue. Yeah, like no exposure to yeah. Western culture. Yeah. And the movies that they did get were from Russia. So a lot of them were subtitled from Russian, East, Eastern European movies because at, time, at Russia at the time was with, still within its communist yeah. regime as the Soviet Union. Yeah. So you get a lot of propaganda movies coming from Russia, you know. So, so they never really saw Western movies or and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. So their experience with movies was from Russia because it was a socialist country. There's a lot of Russians there, so yeah. that's the movies they watched. So you must so. have a, a a really interesting perspective on, I mean, what it means to be a Canadian having traveled. I mean, first of all, you're a member of the First Nations. Yeah. Secondly, you've traveled as a as a kid all over the developing world. Yeah. And um, you know, now you're here. So, okay, here, here's just a basic question to you: What does it mean to be a Canadian? Well, it's kind of a broad question, complex <laughs> question. I mean. <laughs> Obviously, at this time, you know, Canada's kind of in uh, a bit of turmoil because there's a lot of past issues, you know, being brought up, yeah. you know, with the residential schools, as in my opinion, um, you know, on uh, the, the, the children that were died in those residential schools. So, so as... It's kind of a, I don't say a big concern for First Nations, but it's definitely a, an issue with First Nations when they're seeing these past histories and, you know, that these children were their relatives that never came home. So, but is it an issue for other Canadians who are not First Nations? How does it impact them? You know, because it impacts the First Nations community in a big way. For sure. So where do we, where does we get it where, you know, the rest of Canada acknowledges this history in more of a mainstream um, I don't want to say ideology, but recognizes that this happened. Right. You know, and, and whatnot. Or is it just something that everyone's just kind of, okay, it happened, let's move on, you know? Which kind of at times seems to be the case, right? So, yeah. Well, I think there's a definitely a tendency where, if you haven't uh, experienced it or you haven't seen hmm. the product of it firsthand, yeah, it's difficult to really wrap your mind around, yeah, what that means or how that affects a community. And, um, I mean, I've certainly seen it traveling you know, through Northern Ontario and, and across the prairie so far, I've seen that the, um, 
you know, many of the First Nations people that I've come across, they, they're suffering. And some of that can be traced to, I'm sure, the history of it. Yeah. Well, and, you know, as we talked about before, I think it, we're kind of a couple generations away, you know, to get away from, you know, the trauma of a residential school and, and our aunts and uncles and grandfathers experienced there. And they, you know, went into alcoholism and drug use and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. So as I talked about before, the, the, like this generation is still affected by that. Yeah. So because for me, like I was the only one adopted out, but many of my brothers and sisters got placed in health care or foster care. Right. So and then as my mom got better and recovered from from that, then she was able to get most like all the kids back yes so even finding me adopted living in Sastoon at the time so how they found me was my sister worked at the band office and uh eventually i applied for my status card i think when i was like 21 years old okay so so then that at the time like adoption records are sealed so you can't find out who or where you came from yeah so but Going and applying for that status card, it goes back to your band office. So before that, I'm sorry to interrupt. If I'm interrupting you, it's just, it's because I'm interested. Yeah. So before that, you had no idea that you were, I mean, you knew that you were First Nations. Yeah. But you didn't know you were part of the Nakoda. Well, White White Bear. You didn't know you were part of. White Bear has Nakoda, Cinnaboyne, Cree, and Soto. Okay. Tribes from White Bear. Okay, so you had no idea for that? No clue. No clue. Like, wow. So when I applied for my status card, that that application went back to White Bear. Yeah. So when my sister saw that application, because she worked at the band office, that's how they found me. Wow. So then, like, all my brothers and sisters got in contact with me and went came up and visited me in Saskatoon. So that was the first time, you know, seeing my birth family from my Bible. And so and you were in your twenties. Yeah. I was probably twenty one, twenty two, so because because my adopted brother Okay. Um like I think he was about five or six when he when we when uh, he was adopted. So and he found I think his family about seventeen biological and so he went to Regina but his biological family at the time were still, you know, suffering from some of probably the generational trauma from residential school. So he didn't necessarily go into a good family situation there. Right. So when I saw that, so that made me not want to find my biological family. So, so I never looked for them. You were concerned I saw the struggles what? my brother went through when he found his biological family. So, so yeah, so it had an impact on me, but my biological family were a lot stronger than, say, my brother's biological family. So right, and then eventually you moved to White Bear, mm-hmm. and you lived there. And for anybody that's listening that doesn't know, White Bear is a native reserve. Yeah, is um. And there's different, we were kind of talking about this the other night, which I was trying to wrap my head around, but 
um, on a native reserve, they have a very different uh, perspective on land ownership, different concept. Yeah, well, the band owns the land. I mean, you have some rights to use it. Yes. But you don't own it. Right. So, and then it's kind of compl- complicated issue because you can run horses and cattle and th- on these lands, but you don't own it, but families tend to claim it so that, oh, Tuxie's trying to get to her dad right yeah. now. <laughs> there we go. So, yeah, so people have the right to use it, but at times, you know, families claim portions of the, like pasture land and stuff like that, and they say that's theirs to use. Oh, so I see. sometimes the band offer the band will offer to lease that land, so you got to lease it. But for the gen- for the most part, you know, you can kind of everyone can kind of use that land. So, but yeah, families kind of claim their portion and say that's theirs, and you can't use it. So. Right. And how like how big, like just generally speaking, how big is white bear? Uh, to be honest, I'm not sure. Like for, for us in the Moose Mountains, it, you know, we have the boundary just south of the, like the Moose Mountains and it's literally beside the Moose Mountains. So, and then extends to probably 10 kilometers south of that to the next, uh, like the I guess reserve line. Okay. So, so it's quite a big piece of, well, I mean, not huge, but a yes, good size. Yeah, and then we—I'm not even sure how long, how far it goes east and west as well. So, so yeah, it's 120 yeah. square kilometers. Um, and also for anybody that's listening, Tuxie is a cat. That, well, in all fairness, <laughs> in all fan- fairness, Brennan, you did call Tuxie over first. Yeah, but <laughs> cats never come when you call them. <laughs> But she did. Like, this is the first cat ever that actually came when you called her. Yeah. And And she came straight for Jimmy. And I don't know about that. She has even put her mark on Jimmy. That it, well, yeah, she did. And claimed Jimmy. (laughs) I'm not sure she claimed me, but definitely... uh, she seems to like the both of well, us. Well, we'll just have to say we agree to agree. It, <laughs> I don't think that's how the saying goes. <laughs> In this case, it does. <laughs> so, um, now, this is just a, a broad, general question. When you you live in the prairies, what, what do you like the most about living out here? Uh, well, see, technically, I don't live in the prairies. Because the most mountains are a fairly heavily wooded area. Okay. And people have gone lost in them. Really? So now I'm, I've been, I'm currently moving to Fort Capel. So I've got a house here now. So technically Fort Capel isn't a prairie either. Right. It's so, in the, it's in a valley. Yeah. So there's these points within Saskatchewan that not too many people know about. that are like kind of oases of. Wood edit, wooded areas. Yes. Where people, you know, think that Saskatchewan's flat and like you can see your dog running 10 miles away. 
but there's just places that aren't at all like that. Which so. is which is really interesting coming from um, Ontario. I mean, even just talking to people, right? They're like, oh, yeah. get ready to drive across the prairies. You, yeah. you know, these old stories. Oh, you can see your dog running for three days away or, yeah. you know, tie the steering wheel straight, put a brick on the cruise pedal and or put a brick on the gas pedal and just keep going. But it it's not really like that. Well, I think people get that impression is because they go on the Trans-Canada. And why the Trans-Canada built like that? Because they put it on the most flat part. Yeah, the easiest to build. Easiest to build. So, but once you get off the Trans-Canada, you see a lot of different Saskatchewan. Yeah. So, and you know, and I see that because, uh, as I said, I'm a host of warm, uh, warm showers, which I host cyclists. Yes. So, and a lot of them, a lot of cyclists go down the Trans-Canada because it's the easiest route. But a lot of cyclists go off off the route, off Trans-Canada, and they see wholly different, whole different areas. Saskatchewan once they get off the Trans Canada. So so if I have to think about it, you know, I think the reputation Canada get or Canada has or whoever is because they drove down the Trans Canada and yeah, there's a lot of poor parts of the Trans Canada which are really boring. Right. But get off the Trans Canada you'll see a lot more. Yeah, absolutely. So, um I find like my personal experience driving down i i haven't just i didn't just go on the trans canada and pin it yeah you know i take little detours and stuff like that and yeah like this valley that we're in right now yeah um it's absolutely beautiful like yesterday we can talk a little bit about what we did yesterday because i I had so much fun yeah um including your pelican stealing (laughs) i did not steal the pelican rescued the pelican i rescued the pelican um i can't say i made a okay so first of all anybody listening we uh we attended the canada canada day celebrations and among that they have a a pelican race yeah so you buy a pelican and they dump all the pelicans into the river they're like rubber ducks yeah like rubber duckies bathing rubber ducks right and they dump pelican shape Pelican. Sh- now, yeah. why would they be pelican shaped? I have no idea. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't seen any pelicans here. Yeah. This, this is my first Canada down here too, so <laughs> I'm just learning about these. We're kind of learning it together. Yeah, customs, I guess you yeah. say. So, um, I should have asked why pelicans, why not rubber ducks? I should have asked too. Yeah, um, you're probably feeling guilty because you took one of their. Pelicans. No, I didn't feel guilty, and I didn't take it. Okay. <laughs> You got attacked by. You may get in trouble. Somebody, the you, Fort Capel uh, Lions Club, Lions Club is going to come after me when they hear this. So I got to be yeah. careful. Well, you even got attacked by a bird when you were trying to. I know. Retrieve the pelican. So. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I rescued the pelican, and um, so they hold a pelican race. Everybody buys a pelican, and then you go downstream about a half a kilometer or so. Yeah. And uh, they've sort of built a like a funnel in the, in the river. And the first, I think it was the first seven pelicans yeah. to get in, got some kind of a prize money. Yeah. Well, actually first, pl- first place uh, got $7,000. Yeah. That was, I couldn't believe yeah. that $7,000. Yeah. So it was a fundraiser for the Lions Club. So. Yeah. And we sat on the Lions Club float. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They had two comfy chairs. So we <laughs> sat on those while we were waiting. So. Yeah. Waiting for the pelicans to come. Yeah. That was good. Um, Although we did 
try and find the path to the other bridge <laughs> through the bush. But Jimmy led us astray. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I so led us astray. Kind of got lost for a bit. <laughs> so, well, we got to experience. So, yeah, for anybody listening, it's not just flat farmland here. That's there's, when you were attacked by that rattlesnake? There's, well, yeah, I wouldn't say attacked, but it, uh, I don't think it was a rattlesnake. I don't know what it was. It, uh, All I heard was a girlish scream. <laughs> well, I'd never seen a snake like that before, so I don't know. I don't know what it, what its intentions were. But, uh yeah, so we celebrated the the Canada Day long weekend doing that. We went down to the beach, and I mean that. So that lake there, what what's that called? Uh, that one was Echo Lake, right? Echo so Lake. So there's actually four lakes in this kind of chain in the the valley, and the valley extends quite far. I mean, it goes all the way to I think Manitoba. So, and uh, so in this. Capel system, it's uh, Katepwa Lake, Mission Lake, Echo Lake, and Pasco Lake. Okay. So, um, like I told you, I think yesterday, like, this land was all developed by that ancient uh, glacier lake that formed, like, hundreds of years ago. Right. Or thousands of years yeah, ago. Yeah, thousands, even. hundreds of thousands, yeah, maybe. Which extended, it was a huge lake. It extended pretty much all through southwest uh, Manitoba and then up into uh, southeastern and then central Saskatchewan, so, which is kind of how the valley was formed by the glaciers. Yeah. And then also squished into these valleys and stuff like that. So this is a, the remnants of that ancient glacial lake. Yeah. So, and then, then also the where back in White Bear, the Moose Mountains were also formed by that way back when. Really? Yeah. Okay. So, like my perspective on it. So we're sitting at the beach, we're looking out, and we're essentially surrounded everywhere. That lake are great big hills where you can see. I don't know if you call it like striations or whatever, but like these yeah. big lines kind of coming down the hills where it looks like maybe the glacier carved it or water yeah. over the years eroded it. But you're looking at these green hills that are a couple hundred feet high, basically surrounding this whole area. Even driving in here, I noticed that. Yeah. And well, even big enough to that Fort Capel has its own ski hill, Mission, Mission Ski Hill. Right. Yeah. There you so, go. Yeah. So, yeah. And, um, it is a it is definitely a departure from what you see on the Trans Canada. Yeah. Because yeah, Trans Canada land is very flat. Um I mean I saw immense fields of wheat or grass. Yeah. Uh, just basically miles and miles of it. And then as soon as you sort of start to depart from that Trans Canada, the the topology of the landscape changes completely. Yeah. Right? Now you're getting into the valleys, you're going over hills, it's yeah, I mean it's it's really neat in yeah. in a way to see that and to to come to the recognition that um, you know we, we call uh, you know Manitoba and Saskatchewan the Prairie Provinces. Yeah, but that would be like calling Ontario the Forest Province. Yeah, right. It doesn't mean. But when you get into North Saskatchewan, you could probably equal just as many forests in Ontario. Sure. Because North Saskatchewan, once you get up there, past uh, uh, probably between halfway to Sastu or halfway from Sastu to Prince Albert, 
it starts becoming heavily wooded. Right. So, <clears throat> and I know like, um, at times we have friends, uh, up, up North, uh, much say Montreal Lake, they come down to, to hunt. Okay. Because at, at the times when the wolf packs get, get, uh, really bad, they chase all the wild game really deep into the bush and they can't get in there to, to go to after hunt. a moose or something because the wolf packs are chasing all these big game and eating them. Yeah. So a lot of times if they need uh, some meat for a funeral or a ceremony or something like that, they'll come down south to the Moose Mountains because there's a lot, mo- a lot more moose. Right. And uh, elk and things and, and whatnot. So they'll come down harvest one and take it all the way back up to to their community. Yes. So, but at, at the same time, it's kind of, uh, for me, in my opinion, it, Moose Mountains are getting overhunted. Okay. We're, we're getting native hunters from Manitoba, even Ontario. There's a court case that that they came all the way from Ontario and then killed two moose and then got caught taking it back to Ontario. Well, that's not their technically their land. They're right. from a different treaty area. Yes. They're entering Treaty 4. Right. So really when you go and hunt in someone else's traditional land, you're supposed to ask for permission. Yeah. So, because you're taking away food from the hunters in, in within that treaty area. Right. So, so we're getting a lot of native hunters coming into the Moose Mountains to harvest animals. Yeah. And, and then taking them home. But they're not from that treaty so they're, area. Yeah. They're exercising their treaty rights as First Nations. Right. But they're entering someone else's treaty treaty lands yeah that's an interesting concept like i had never heard heard about that before so perhaps um it's more of a western canada thing but like what is the idea of these different treaty lands like you had mentioned treaty four and there's treaty five and you said in alberta there's different treaty well i think within each province because i haven't really looked outside of treaty kind of treaty four because yeah, that doesn't your... really concern me what happens in Treaty 6, which I think is in Alberta. Right. But there's these different treaty lands within that, at the time, made the agreement with the government of Saskatchewan. So I think each treaty is fairly similar, but different. Right. So, like, so with whatever First Nations with, within that treaty uh, got together and made an agreement with Canada. Way back when, 1900s or late 1800s. Yes. So, and then, so that's why different treaty lands were established and what, why they're numbered differently. Okay. Because so, so right now we're on Treaty 4 land. Right. So this isn't status land, but across the street from my house. It's status, status land. land. Okay. So, so, yeah, so. so and that's interesting. Um we were talking a little bit uh, about fishing yesterday. Yeah. And I said, um, you know, I said, oh, we should go fishing. I, of course, I'd have to buy a Saskatchewan fishing license. Yeah. Um, and then as a, as a member of the First Nations, yeah. um, you don't because yeah. you're, uh, I guess, considered one of the ancestral peoples of Canada. But you said, but the thing is, we wouldn't be able to fish together. Yeah. Which I thought was really... That didn't. That didn't make a lot of sense to me. Well, see, it's it's uh, like 
because I have hunting and treaty or fishing rights as a First Nations person. So I can go harvest to feed right. my family. And up north, you know, they, they, they net fish and they take vast amounts of fish to feed the community. Yeah. So, so according to the tree laws, uh, a, a First Nation status cannot hunt or fish with a non, non-status, non-First Nation. Okay. But you got a fishing license. Right. I, I could fish with you, but I'd have to buy a fishing license too. But, how does so, that make any sense? Well, because then I'm kind of waiving my, I guess, my status as. Okay. And you would be subject yeah. then to the same rules that yeah. I would be yeah. under my fishing so license. If I want to go to a fishing tournament, yeah. say the Alameda Fishing Derby. Yes. So in, in order to enter that tournament, I'd also have to buy a fishing license. Because now I'm not like technically feeding my community or feeding my family. I'm entering a kind of a pleasure tournament. So, so maybe the difference of it has to do with like the purpose, yeah. the intended purpose. Yeah. Now with the, with the first nations people being able to harvest, and this is, I mean, because I'm a big fisherman, um, so something I'm always concerned with, at least in my at my home, is the management of the resource. Yeah. Um, in Ontario, we have the Ministry of Natural Resources. Yeah. And they, um, I mean, they set the limits, right, yeah. for what you can keep, what you can catch, when the season is, when there isn't. Um, they also do some monitoring. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the resources over the past 20 years have been dwindling to that Absolutely. organization. Absolutely. You're the same thing as Saskatchewan. So we have a lot less conservation officers patrolling. and Yeah, I mean, it's been years since, I mean, I seem to see like the provincial police on the water in force, but very, very seldom will you see a natural resources officer. I mean, that's, yeah. I, it's been like 10 years since yeah. I've actually seen one on the water yeah. and I go all over the place fishing. Yeah. Well, the, like I know the conservation officers in the Moose Mountain, like uh, the, there's only a few, but a lot of times they patrol the main road and they check you for your rifles and gun safety. And also at the time, making sure you have your uh, pal in order to, to hold a no a does that arm. does that apply to first nations people as well or they'll, is they'll also check they'll also check yeah okay so and then you would just say okay i'm first nations yeah i have my pal so i just show it to them and nope and no whatnot. issues yeah and obviously you know you don't want to carry a loaded gun in your vehicle well, of course yeah so because you might be traveling from one area so you can yeah work and walk go hunting or yeah. whatever yeah um because there's, there's a lot of offshoots on in the Moose Mountains, different like trails and things like that. Okay. So a lot of times you can just park and then you can just walk. Now, is the Moose Mountains, is that reserve land or? It's uh, crown land. It's crown land. Yeah. Okay. So it's like if if we wanted to go hunt, a, well, technically well, you're supposed to. Is to say you want to go hunt on a farmer's land, you go ask that permission. Permission, yes. To uh, I think now it's kind of getting convoluted because there's 
like First Nations who, you know, saying it's their treaty right to go hunt on this land, even though it's private. Right. So, but then I guess you could say it's an etiquette rule, you know, go ask this farmer for permission. Right. So, uh, so, and I think, uh, I think in the past few years, it's kind of gone back and forth in court, you know, what's the treaty right of just going onto that land and hunting. So, so I, I can't remember what the determination is. But yeah, I can see how there would be a conflict between um, private land ownership because on one side you have somebody that paid money themselves and said, okay, I own this land. And then on the other side you have somebody saying, well, it's our right to hunt this land and whether you own it or not does not affect my rights as a First Nations person. Yeah. So I can see how that would cause conflict yeah. for sure. So yeah, so for the most part I think it's whatever the court ruling was, it's still an etiquette to go ask ask permission, you yeah. know. Just say, Can I please hunt your land? You know? Yes. That way at least they know you're gonna be on there. Right. And and uh then can also tell you please don't shoot in this direction. Right. This There's direction. a house over the hill here, yeah. so we don't, or, please don't shoot or towards this. Is where our cattle are going to be and whatnot. So right, because you, obviously you don't want to be shooting firearms. Yep. Know your target and beyond. Hurt a, hurt a cattle or right. horses. Sure. You know because gunshots will spook horses and whatnot. So sure they will. Um, now, if you're engaging in any of these activities, fishing, hunting, and you're on reserve land, um, there wouldn't be the ministry would not be in there. They could be on there, but they would have to be invited by chief and council to. So council would have to give them permission. Yeah, just like RCMP. So like I know White Bear has an agreement with RCMP to enforce laws on the banned lands. Yes. So, but they could also um, take that away. Say, uh, we don't want you on, on our lands. Right. So. And like we talked about before, like White Bear has its own bylaws. Right. So for, say, target shooting, Mm -hmm. go ahead and target shoot, but just don't be within 500 yards of a private dwelling or a home dwelling. Right. So so you can't go, say, in the pasture, find an appropriate location to shoot. Yes. And then you can sight in your rifle or fire handguns and whatnot. Right. Because White Bear has its own uh, bylaws. Yeah, so, so every reserve simply has to follow as well. Because it's not just like it's uh and correct me if I'm wrong, but um it's not just like every uh reserve is just like a piece of Canada that's owned by the band. Yeah. They're actually almost like a nation state yeah. to themselves. Yeah. Because uh I can't remember what it was uh, maybe ten years ago. Um the government of Saskatchewan put in a lot of non-smoking laws. Right. So for White Bear having, and within Sega having their own, where the casinos. Right. Within different, like Saskatoon, North Alfred, Prince Albert. Um, and they're all on urban reserve lands and White Bear skates, White Bear land. Well, we permit, it was permitted that they were smoking within the casino and the government couldn't say otherwise. That's because whatever band 
was on that land made its own bylaws about smoking. Right. So, and uh, the government Saskatchewan couldn't enforce it because the bands made their own bylaws. Right. And so, it's, it's not just that it's their land in the sense of private ownership. Like we said, a farmer would yeah. own a field. The land is actually, um, it's almost its own nation, yeah. isn't it? Well, 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 in reality, the only ones who could have a say is the governments of Canada. Because okay. Bands are, I guess, I'm putting air quotes, regulated by the government of Canada. Right. So, and not the provinces. Okay. So, so it's like federal yeah, jurisdiction. Yeah, it's federal jurisdiction, not provincial. I gotcha. So, even though in, in the case in the case of Saskatchewan and gaming, the federal government gave that jurisdiction for the provinces to handle. Okay. So we follow with SLGA and WCLC, right? Which is Western Canada Lotteries Commission and Saskatchewan Liquor Gaming Authority. Yes. Or agency or whatever. Yeah. So the that's the provincial go- governing body for. Yeah. Alcohol, gaming, stuff yeah. like that. So the federal government said, for the case Saskatchewan, you handle it. We're not going to deal right. with it. We don't want to deal with it. You handle it. So Saskatchewan and Gaming Authority made agreements with Saskatchewan Liquor and Gaming Authority with, through the government of Saskatchewan. So. But otherwise, bands make their own bylaws, which only the it's under federal jurisdiction. So. But the government's kind of not to, not in fear very much. So, right, gotcha. Hmm. Interesting. Um, okay, I want to ask you a little bit. Uh, I mean, what is? I don't know if I already asked this or whether we didn't really um, answer it properly. But what's your? I, I mean, you've traveled all around the world but what is your favorite part about living here about living in saskatchewan or living in canada what well it was always home right like essentially if i wasn't living somewhere else i grew up in saskatoon right so i mean i lived in prince albert for two years i lived in larange for two years um i went to school outside of edmonton for two years but Saskatoon was always the home base. We always returned after uh, whatever two-year stint we were at. So I, th- I think that was the main thing because it was considered home. We always returned and recovered or whatever. Yeah. Often you're coming from these poor third-world nations, so it's almost a culture shock returning home, right? Because you can finally go to a store and see something yeah to buy you can actually buy something you know like for a long time like obviously we never had tv so being able to watch tv yeah and whatnot and and then also candy candy was like holy shit candy (laughs) yeah like it's a huge shock and you're just like I don't know where I'm going next, but I'm going to eat as much candy as I can. <laughs> For sure. So, Hey, and with your dad being a dentist. <laughs> yeah. So there's like, 
I think after we came back from Mozambique for because uh, we had to come to a funeral, then I probably gained like 20, 20 pounds just eating candy <laughs> because I knew I was going back and I I wouldn't get it for again for a long time. Yeah. So, so yeah. So I I, I don't know. That was always considered our home base. That's why we always returned back to Canada. So. Yeah, um, I've done some traveling through. I've never been across the Atlantic, so I've never been to Europe or anything like that. But I have done some traveling through South America, and I've been down to some of the Caribbean islands and stuff like that. And um, when I travel down there, I don't really do the the all-inclusive experience. I mean, sometimes I'll stay at an all-inclusive resort just because it's easier for meals and stuff like that. But yeah. I'm not one to go on the guided tour. And uh, it's been a number of times like... Um, when I was in Costa Rica, uh, Cuba, uh, Mexico, I, I hired local people yeah. um, just to drive me around yeah. and show me, you know, like I want to see, you know, really what life is like. I don't want to see the, the, the tourist area that's painted by the, the brush of uh, Canadian, American, Russian, you know, tourist money. I don't want to see that. I want to see how you guys live. And yeah. i you know, when we stop to eat, I want to eat what you guys eat, Yeah. you know, and experience really what, what that's about. And, uh, I think you're right in that there's something as Canadians, especially if we don't see that, or even for those of us who traveled and sort of take the tourist route, which I'm not mocking, like there is something really nice about sitting on a beach in Jamaica drinking pina coladas <laughs> yeah eating your own mahi mahi you're right well this is the thing yeah <laughs> right um yeah i caught a mahi mahi in costa rica that yeah. a local fisherman took me out um just kind of out of the kindness of his heart and yeah yeah we caught fish well, and I, I was well let me tell you about the experience off the coast of mozambique there's islands okay and they're kind of like little oasis so my dad decided, well, okay, we're going to take a vacation. So we took a little four-seater Cessna, flew out to this little island. So it kind of had a little hotel and whatnot. But they also offered deep sea fishing. And then also, like, you could dive for lobsters. Okay. So we went deep sea fishing. And at the end of the day, we ended up with 21, um, not salmon, but uh, tuna. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So and they were huge tuna. So, but it, unfortunately, it was too rough to go lobster diving. Yeah. But we we caught all these tuna after literally a whole day of fishing, so they were able to prepare us, you know, a big tuna feast. Yeah. Then we the rest of the tuna we gave to the island to share amongst the, yes. the people. Yeah. Stuff like that, and and it was delicious, beautiful setting. Yeah, but it's like an oasis of tourism, right? In a war-stricken country. Country. Yeah, which is so, weird. Yeah, and literally, you could walk around the whole island and everything. So yeah, so even fishing there is completely different. They don't have rods. What they have is say you put four hooks on a on a line. Yeah. Then they'll bait them with something. Right. And then that line is attached to like a board. Yes, and they just wind it around a board. Yeah, and then they throw it yep. manually by weights. 
Yeah, it's like yeah. A, they do it like a lasso almost, yeah. and then throw it out, yeah. and then take it in by hand. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that before. Yeah, well, that's the only way they fished. Right, because fishing rods didn't exist. But did you catch a tuna on something like that? No, there they had like a deep, deep sea fishing boat, and, and because that's more of a tourist area. Yeah, that was a yeah tourist oasis or whatever. Yeah, so there was actual rods for that. When you go fish off the beaches in Mozambique and even off the island, like there's people living on the island, they fish for themselves and that's what they use. Right. So like um, back to what you were saying um, about sort of Canada being home and having all these luxuries that you wouldn't have. That is something that I was, you know, I'm always shocked when I travel to these uh, other countries um, and you actually see how the locals live outside yeah. of the tourist areas. Yeah. Um, the standard of living, I, I don't think a lot of people, uh, appreciate it. And, you know, you might go to the resort and you'll see people, you know, there's beggars and, and stuff like that at the resort, but you don't really get a feel for it until you get out of that area and you actually see i mean i can remember uh, when i was in cuba uh i hired a man his name was there i think it was ernesto mm. um he uh he took me to a local village and it was the strangest thing because everybody lived in what i could describe as like a little tin shack it was like kind of like sheet metal little houses yeah um but then when the people would come out of their house they had like fresh pressed clothes it was like and i was asking him he said because everybody um you know the living situation is the same but the one thing that maybe you have control over is you know having clean clothes yeah ha you know being able to present yourself in that sort of manner which to me it seems so backwards because you can go to places in Canada where there's uh, obviously people that are very wealthy, um, big houses, everything. And then they're outside in a set of track pants and a t-shirt with pizza stains from three mm -hmm. nights ago. And you're going, you know, it's just, a, it's a different perspective where we don't, we don't realize that um, we don't realize the things that just by virtue of living in Canada, we have these certain advantages yeah I, can, I, I speak more of Mozambique because I was older so I remember a lot more but in in all the places I lived we were always placed kind of right in the middle of the community so and and a lot of times they were way out in not near cities like in Nigeria we lived in an area called McCurdy so it was kind of very far away from Lagos and and cities and stuff like that. So it's kind of a rural setting. So in Papua New Guinea, we were way out in the highlands in a smaller community. No paved roads or anything. So you got around by four by four or you walked. So, and it was literally jungle. So my community kind of carved out in the jungle. Wonderful hiking areas. Because there's a lot of the the birds of paradise and whatnot that you could see, 
the beautiful long plumages and whatnot. Then you go out in a lot of waterfalls and things like that. But there isn't a lot there, right? So there wasn't very many stores there because it's a really extreme kind of mountain rural setting. Yeah. In Mozambique, we lived in the second biggest city and essentially lived in, uh, I think about like eight, eight story apartment building. Yeah. Which had both Mozambican families and also foreigner families. Okay. But you're right in the community. So, and Mozambique was a former Portuguese colony. Right. Which is why Portuguese was the common language. Right. They speak Portuguese there or kind of like a version of it. Yeah. There's some, yeah, slight variances and whatnot and slight slang. Right. And stuff like that. So, but I went to school there and there was, for Mozambique, there's not, not enough schools and too many students. So we we essentially went in the morning or the afternoon. Okay. Then you had the rest of the day off. So if you have morning classes, you get up and go to school in the morning. Then you have the afternoon off. You don't have school. So at the beginning, it was kind of hard because you have the language barrier. Yeah. I remember the one time, I, I think my first or second day, the teacher asked me something. And I thought he asked me to go to the office. So I get up and start leaving. Then the whole class starts laughing at me. So yeah. I was like, well, I don't know what's going on here. What the, what did he ask me? I, I, I thought he said go to the office. Yeah. But I can't remember what he was asking me because obviously I was kind of embarrassed. Sure. And returned to my seat and lost my focus. So, so yeah, but, you know, you kind of go there with a bit of language, but even though we had lived in Portugal for six months trying to learn Portuguese. So, and some of it rubbed off and some of it didn't, you know, so, yeah. but as you live there longer, you become more, a lot more fluent. Yes. So by the end, I've pretty much lost it now, but then the, the two years you could speak Portuguese pretty fluently. Yeah. So I still have a friend that, uh, that's back in, uh, Beira there that I talk to regularly on uh, Facebook. Really? So, yeah. so you kept in touch with people from yeah, your he childhood? Yeah, in the same class as me, and he was my buddies. We hung out all the time and whatnot. So, so. Wow. Okay, so now I asked you what your favorite part about Canada is. What part about Canada or what aspect of Canada do you think could use the most improvement I don't like to ask people what part about Canada don't you like, because I mean, there's a lot to like here, but there's always room for improvement, even in a straight A student. And I'm not saying Canada is a straight A student, but where do you think that, that we could improve the most as a country? Well, that's once again, you're asking a pretty broad topic. I mean, because Canada is so different. Well, you can from, take it to wherever you want. I mean, from the Maritimes to Eastern Canada to Western Canada to, to like BC. But even, uh, so, I'd appreciate your local perspective on this. Yeah. Uh, well, for, for myself, you know, I'm fairly, you know, satisfied. Yes. You know, like I'm 50 years old. Yeah. Well, not till August, but. Okay. Even though I look like I'm 20. I'll have to, you do. So. We both look younger than we are. Yeah. So and all the girls were what can looking at you at the beach yesterday. By the way, I noticed I wasn't getting many looks. 
Well, they're probably like, who's that, who's that First Nations hanging out with that uh, white guy? Oh, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, right. Who's that First Nations guy hanging out with that sexy white guy? And, uh, definitely not. <laughs> uh. I don't know. I think it's just uh, because you, as a First Nations person, you feel it, right? Yeah. Uh, over. Uh, the underlying kind of looks you get and and whatnot and personally I you know I I go to stores and you get followed and you can feel it and and then you also let them know that they that you know they know that you know you're you're getting followed right and things like that so so it's uh I don't know just things like that 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 uh, people have these preconceived notions and stereotypes and you get a lot of people, you know, saying that as First Nations, you get everything for free. So there are some things, you know, that may be a little bit beneficial to First Nations. Yes. So, but there's a lot that aren't. Right. You know? So, like like I said, back in 1993... White Bear had the first Indian casino in Canada. Right. But what was, why was that built and developed? Because White Bear had 96%, 98% unemployment rate. Yeah. And then the leadership at the time said, you know, we need to do something to get our people jobs. Right. And the people were having a hard time getting jobs yeah. outside of yeah. the community. Yeah. And rea- in reality, most of these First Nations that don't have economic development within their their land yeah. work at the band office. Right. So let's let's not get into band politics and yeah, family no, politics because that's even broader topic. Sure. But at the time back in 1993, you know, that's how essentially where the seed of Sega formed. And now what? 28 years later, oh, 20, 96, that's four, 26 years later, Sega now has seven casinos within Saskatchewan. So, and that's what brought a lot of unemployment or employment to the First Nations people. Yes. Then also allowing families to break out of that cycle of poverty. And so their parents are working. And right. being able to fo- afford to send their kids to school. Right. And then if they're lucky enough to get funding from the band, which usually because the pie isn't big enough, it's very small. Yes. Then then they have a better time at university. Oh, and university. Yeah. So. And university is not cheap. Like that. That's a, like if you were asking me one of the things that I think Canada could improve, I think it is access to higher education because there's lots of people who are capable and they're smart yeah. um, and they're not able to get yeah. access to higher education. And there's a lot of, on the flip side, there's a lot of higher educational institutions that are happy to give you, I mean, we're good at turning out educated people through the yeah. university system, but we're not particularly good at connecting them with any kind of employment or job. 
Yeah. I mean, you can get a, a degree in history. Well, how many historians are there? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and I'm not trying to put down anybody who studied history because it's yeah. extremely important. I'm a student of history myself. I love it. But uh, just, there's only so many jobs and so much competition. That's right. So, so well, that, that's essentially what I told a friend of mine is because she had a was in art, right? And I said it's very hard to break into positions in art. Sure. Because if you're I guess vision of your art doesn't mm -hmm. succeed. Yeah. Then, you know, you still have to support yourself and your kids and whatnot. Right. So it'd be like music, the same yeah. thing, right? How many people make it big? And then even if you don't make it big, how many jobs are there at the, you know, Toronto symphony orchestra Yeah. or whatever? That's yeah, it. I, I think it, if you want to be something in art, it takes years of experience. Uh, years of doing it yeah to establish self because my sister has two degrees one in engineering yeah so she could go work for say an oil company yeah. and make lots of money yeah but she wanted wants to do her vision of what she wants to do within the regina art community so but it took her years to build up to that okay and obviously you know she Goes, her family goes through some financial hard times. Yes. In order to get with her where she is now, where she's fairly not well known within the art community. So you definitely, if you were going to take one of those uh, programs of study, it would you'd really have to be passionate about it and willing to put, yeah, you know, years and years right. and years in your life into yeah. into being becoming successful. And when I think you, when you hear starving artists, that's pretty accurate. Yeah, for sure. Because it's very hard to get people to appreciate your vision of art, right? So, and there's so many artists out there with their different visions. So, and some are successful and make a good name for themselves, mm -hmm. but they're very talented. Yeah. Right? So, so yeah, obviously, actually, White Bear has their, uh, their own talented art artist with uh, Michael Ownchild. That, that's what we were yeah. talking about that yesterday. Yeah. You seem to know a lot about the local artists and, and stuff like that. I, I'm fascinated by that as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Michael, Michael Lonechild, he's, a, he's an artist from White Bear. From White yeah. Bear. And I can literally see his house from mine. So. <laughs> Do you ever go and bug him? <laughs> Ask for a portrait or something? I've, I've golfed with him a few times here. There. Have you? Yeah. And then his brother as well. So his yeah. brother's also talented. He has two brothers, John Lonechild and, uh, oh, God. I get my butt kicked for forgetting his name offhand. Because so. I, I used to golf with him even more. But uh, but he, his brother, his two brothers, those talented artists too. Yeah. His brother John is more famous, I think, for his like duck, duck uh, artwork. Okay. So um, I don't know if you've seen Michael and Charles, but uh, he's not offhand. But I'd love to. Yeah. Well, now we can stop at one of the places, and he has. They have a print there, and you can kind of see what. Sure. What he does so yeah i'd love that so yeah so yeah okay so you think probably um well, i don't even know what the original question was no, well i think, think we <laughs> 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 you know you, we get so lost in this yeah. stuff but we were talking about places where um canada could kind of improve yeah and i i think 
if I, and I'm just going to paraphrase you for a moment so that you can tell me whether I'm understanding it correctly, but, um, it's basically, uh, especially from a first nations per- perspective. Yeah. Um, I, think I, I think I said it at the beginning is that Canadians need to educate themselves on the history of first nations people. Cause I think we talked about it earlier before it's not in the history books. Yeah. Right. And, uh, or taught in school. Yeah, at least you it know, wasn't like when I went to school. Yeah, it's not in the textbooks or anything like that because it's mainly, the, I guess you could say, the colonial history. But even we don't get a lot of colonial history. You ask uh, young kids now who was General Wolfe and Montcalm and let's talk about the fight between the, the French and the English. Their their eyes glaze over. They, they know yeah. more U.S. history than they do Canadian history for yeah. whatever reason. Yeah. You know, and whether that's a shortfall in our education system or just our exposure to American media and pop culture, that sort of thing. Yeah. But a lot of people um, don't really seem to know the history of Canada. Yeah. Like we were talking uh, before about how at one time Canada was essentially a dominion of the Hudson Bay company. Yeah. And which kind of brings us to the other cool thing in, in Fort uh, Capel here. Yeah. We were talking and saying, okay, why is it Fort Capel? Yeah. And uh, me and you did a little bit of research last night. Yeah. And well, yeah. beforehand we speculated, you know. Yeah, we spe- and correctly. A Hudson Bay post or something. Right. And you it, can still see what looks like it when we're down at yeah. the campground. I don't know if that's well, a I reproduction. I don't know if you saw the main building, but it's an old, old brick building. That yeah. Which still says Hudson Bay on it. Right. And there's a second-hand, like, Goodwill store in there now. Okay. Yeah, and then there's that big gated off wooden, they're like giant logs driven into the ground yeah. vertically to make yeah. like a gate. Yeah. And uh, I thought that was really fascinating. But a lot of people, you know, they don't realize that Canada in its modern form yeah. is a relatively new nation in terms of the world. I mean, you go to Europe, yeah, they've got thousands of years of history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we're talking about um, modern Canada, it doesn't have that much history. And yet that history isn't known. Now, there are thousands of years of history, certainly from a First Nations perspective. But where is that history recorded? Well, well it was orally handed down. Right. It wasn't written down. So it was... And, but a lot of that was lost from residential schools. Yeah. So a lot of the history is now gone forever. Yeah, which is a shame. Residential schools, because obviously enough people know what happened in residential schools now, is that you were forbidden to to practice your culture. Right. So it was. And what what was the what was the idea of that? I don't I don't get that. The idea of residential schools was to. Like to take the get, native out of the native. To get the Indian out of the Indian. Yeah. To and make them into little church cores. So I read so. something like that in this uh, Canadian Human Rights Museum, which I visited in Winnipeg, which, by the way, I'd like to note that although I found the museum very interesting and fascinating, yeah. I don't think they had nearly enough on the First Nations. Mm. Um, they have a floor, a section on a floor that talks about it and a couple of small exhibits that talk about the residential school system. Yeah. But, uh, it certainly didn't tell the whole story. 
Well, it's not just a Canadian story. I mean, everywhere the church went, that's what they tried. Sure they did. Right, so so it's... Oh, even the missions down in South America and, and stuff like that, right? Yeah, because I, I don't even think I know people know that when you look at the uh, South African apartheid system and they put the South African black people on these, uh, they call it something different, but reserves or... Yeah, like a ghetto. Yeah, and they modeled it after Canadian reserves. So Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So so, so that what like reserve systems spread out all the way, you know, even to South Africa. So the colonialists basically saw this as a successful model. Well, in South Africa, yeah. You know, this is this is the way that we should do it. Yeah. Where they same as Canada, in order to leave the reserve, you had to have a pass from yeah. the Indian agent. Right. Well, same thing in South Africa through apartheid. If you want to leave the, your township or whatever, I can't remember what they call it right offhand, but if you want to leave and go work, you had to have a signed passbook. Yeah. So, papers, please. Yeah. A papers, please society, mm-hmm. which actually recently it seems like we're moving in the wrong direction from that. We're getting closer to that now after the pandemic. Yeah. I'll tell you a time I, me and my brother went to a nightclub in Regina. And this is kind of like the overt racism they experienced. They wanted five pieces of picture ID. Now, who carries five pictures of picture ID? Not me. Well, what? <laughs> fun, funnily enough, I had five pictures of piece ID on me. Okay. So I, but my brother didn't. So usually you only carry about two. Sure. So for some reason I was carrying my passport that night. So okay. that kicked in and then I can't remember what the other ones were. So I had I had my five pieces of picture ID, but my brother isn't, so he wasn't allowed in. Obviously I'm not gonna go in yeah. with him, but yeah. But yeah, who asked for five pieces of picture ID? You know, so And what would the purpose of that like if if you're just speculating, what's the what's the purpose of that? Well, we were native. So they just they, don't they, want you to come in. So they're yeah. going to ask you something impossible. Yeah. They don't want our business. That's disgusting. So. Well, yeah, I guess um, back to what, uh, I mean, your original, what you were saying needs improvement. Um, yeah, certainly there needs to be uh, a, a cultural shift. Well, I think there needs to be better in the schools and and specifically a section on residential schools. And so people understand, you know, there's a lot of grief and trauma right now. So, and then also even within First Nations communities, you know, we have to strive for, to, you know, acknowledge that grief and trauma, but also try and get our, our families out of that cycle you know? right because a lot a lot of families get caught up in that alcohol and and drugs and whatnot so right and then so, children see that in their parents yeah like uh, lack of role models yeah um, and then unfortunately you know when that happens then child protective services gets involved right so then it, it the cycle continues yeah it just you makes know, it worse they're getting seized and you know like cows is is developing a has developed a a program, you know, where 
you know, they try and place these children back into the First Nations community rather than getting fostered out somewhere. Right. So so they're doing inroads and in work like that. But a lot of First Nations families, if they're caught in that cycle, you know, then the children get caught in the cycle where they're fostered out and whatnot. And then they lose some of their family identity and whatnot. So the cycle continues, you know, because they were in abusive family settings and whatnot. So then they get removed. Then who knows where they get placed. Right. Right. So because a lot of, I don't want to put a blanket on it, but some foster families do it because they want the money. Yeah, sure. So and it's, they could be placed in another abusive situation. So I think in order to prevent that, we got to make um, families healthier, you know, so they're not in these cycles. Right. So, so, and it, it's going to be, like I said, I think at least two generations before we get on Start more to the positive side and then have these unhealthy families kind of in that where they're the, not the norm. Yeah. Being able to break out of that. So, Um, but a lot of this generation right now, and I'm 50, so I'm talking about my generation. Yes. Is sees the effect of residential schools on the moms, uncles and aunties and grandfather, grandparents. So we still see that effect and we're affected by it. Right. So, and for those of us who are not in that cycle, we can allow our kids to be in a healthy family setting. Yes. So. And I think like just in, in seeing what, what I've learned and talking to you over the past couple of days, um, I think there is a really difficult line to walk as well. Like for any, any policymakers, because, um, you don't want to take, uh, I'll use your words. You don't want to take the Indian out of the Indian. Yeah. Um, you want people, I mean, for the most part, we are a society that has cultural amnesia. We don't know. A lot of us don't know really where we came from beyond our grandparents. Yeah. Um, so where we want to try to support and maintain that, that culture, but at the same time, um, we have to find a way where I don't want to use the word integration because it sounds like we're all supposed to be the same and mm-hmm. we're not, but to find a way that we can all function in a, in a society to, to create a functional society. Yeah. Well, well I want to say like th- these are all in my personal opinion and, and, and from what I've seen, but also, you know, you can kind of see, where, you know, Southern bands in Saskatchewan were pretty heavily affected by residential schools, but the farther north you get with the Cree and then the Dene and whatnot, they still retain a lot of their cultural, their languages, their way of living, their hunting, their trapping and whatnot, because they weren't as heavily impacted, in my opinion, by residential schools. Okay. A lot, yeah, were. Yes. But, but, uh, at the same time, right now in this day and age, a lot of those bands are suffering because of drugs and alcohol. So their whatever families somehow got into that cycle. Yes, you know, and whether they're able to leave the band and find a living off off of it, I don't know. Right. You know, but 
but their way of life wasn't necessary. In my view, they were able to retain their cultural practices a lot better than the Southern bands. Right. So, because a lot of them can still speak their language and, and whatnot, but a lot of Southern bands lost their, their language. So, and you know, there's a revitalization of learning the languages and, and whatnot, bringing it back before it's lost. Yes. You know, so, but you go up north and stuff like that. It's a whole different world because they're able to speak their language and whatnot. So it's good to see, but at the same time, it's at some of these these bands are sad to see because a lot of them are, are in alcohol and drug dependencies. And how did they end up there? You know, so. Yeah, that I, is sad. I'm not sure about the history of those of those bands and the families that yeah that where they started how they started on because i'm sure some of them did go to end up in residential school they were captured and or whatever it's yeah. into residential school so yeah um okay so now you told me i said uh i probably, just, I probably lied no, <laughs> no i don't think so this i'm just i'm gonna change it change gears a little bit Okay, my van. Um, before I, before you go on, I just want to thank you for your rendition of "Barbie Girl" by Aqua. <laughs> Very entertaining. <laughs> that was off <laughs> off mic, <laughs> but you sang it perfectly on key. I, <laughs> yes, I did. I don't know the dance, but <laughs> anyway, the van. Um, you know, Aqua's coming Saskatoon in uh, September. Really. I didn't even know they were still around. Well, they are. Okay, well. You should get tickets. And knowing the reliability of my van, I might still be here. Perfect. So, okay, the van. I was talking (laughs) about the van. Um, I said I want to call it the turtle. Yeah. And you said I should call it the buffalo. No, I didn't say buffalo. I said Tonka. Tatanka. Yeah. And that's a First Nations word. No, it's a Sioux word. A for, s- Sioux word for buffalo. Sioux word for a buffalo. Yeah, the Cree probably have another word for it. Okay. I'm not sure what it is. And then I said, because my van's white, I want to call it the white buffalo. And you said, no, that's sacrilegious. Well, I didn't. I said, it's like a white buffalo is considered sacred. So, and most animals, because I get, they're kind of an abnormality in, in um, nature, right? To have a white deer or white elk or whatever. Although I've never seen a white turtle. But. Yeah. That- <laughs> and, and, and Sue, you know, like part of the creation story is the, the white buffalo calf woman. So and that's what I wanted to hear. Yeah, she came down and and um, essentially gave the Sioux people the wife buffalo calf pipe, so which is right now held by Orville Looking Horse, looked after by Chief Orville. And Looking this Horse. is a, like a smoking pipe. Yeah, it's a real. Well, it's a very old pipe. Like uh, I've I've had I I wouldn't say I've had the privilege of seeing it because it's so old and that they don't actually take it out anymore. Okay. But it's wrapped in a buffalo uh, robe. 
yes. or hide. And then they bring that out. And then you can pray or whatever. This is back in 1993 or 94 when I got that privilege of, of, of seeing it, although I didn't really see it. So it's very old. It's a very, very old sacred pipe. So there was thought to have been given by the Buffalo calf woman. And who is the Buffalo calf woman? Well, I can't quite remember the entire story and I don't want to say it where, because I, I might say it wrong. Yes. So, and usually our elders say, if you can't tell it right, don't tell it. So that's a good, uh, that's a good principle to live by. Yeah. So I don't want to tell a story that's wrong or I say it wrong or whatnot. Okay. Fair enough. So, but the, yeah, the, the, I don't say the gist of it, but the, I guess for Canadians, the Coles note breakdown is Buffalo calf woman gave us, gave us this, the Sioux people, this pipe and, and, that's essentially a, gave us, you know, the buffalo, so that two people could live and survive and and whatnot. So, so which is somewhere within that story that I don't want to say it wrong is uh, I think the sacredness of the white buffalo because she was known as the wife buffalo calf woman. Okay, so so not a good idea to call my van. The white buffalo. We well, call it the white turtle, I think. And that's. No, but I've never seen a white turtle. Right? <laughs> well, you can see one now. Look in the driveway. And I told you it looks kind of muddy, so it's not white. So. Yeah, the off-white. And it's from '91. That, <laughs> that white is not white anymore. Okay, it's a '92. All right. It's like a dull gray. <laughs> well, I did cross about. You can uh, call it the dull gray turtle. <laughs> I feel like that has even less appeal. <laughs> but more accurate. And yeah, but it is more accurate, yeah. The dull gray striped turtle. <laughs> it is got, striped. You got your racing stripes That's, on Well, your... no, I wouldn't say they're racing stripes. <laughs> well, it depends on who you're racing. There's no, yeah, if I'm racing a turtle, <laughs> then yes, yeah. Well, you might still be able to beat the rabbit. And, <laughs> yeah, maybe, slow and steady. That's right. Um, okay, I'll ask you. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to ask you the uh, last question. I asked this to everybody. You so, said that was the last question for an event. No, I did not. No, you have another last question? This is the last question. So two last questions, okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, we can have as many last questions as we want, can't we? I don't know. It's my podcast. <laughs> so, okay. Um, if you're road tripping, you're driving somewhere far, if you had to pick one song, one artist, one album, whatever it is to listen to, what what would it be? I pick a nineteen hour audiobook. <laughs> yeah, you said when you drove down to the States. <laughs> yeah, when I drove down from White Bear to Idaho Falls in I think eighteen hours. Yes. I listened to a whole book all the way there. Wow. So I don't know who the artist was, <laughs> but I heard his voice for 18 Was hours. it a good book? Oh, yeah. I can't remember which book it was, but, you know, you get a good audio book, like you're listening to the story. Yeah. So, and then it, 
you're concentrating on the story while you're driving and you kind of forget about driving even though you're driving yeah yeah and so, time just flies so by there you go there's your okay. because most songs what are average three minutes right if you're singing yeah oh but i mean this is this question too late is, too late that, that's your answer that's my Official. answer last yeah. because the, the people who are talking in this audiobook are artists okay yeah so, true they are artists yeah if you get a good uh narrator then they can take you away you're right you're right absolutely right okay well all right brennan thank you very much <laughs> did i throw a <laughs> did i throw a wrench in your question no 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 I, it's whatever well, i'd rather you say i did it's whatever okay fine you did it's supposed I, to be a song i know i did but uh no it's whatever because everybody likes listening to something different when they're driving um, and I've had all kinds of different answers. I ask people, you know, what do you like to listen to when you're driving? And, uh, I get everything from AC, DC, to classical jazz, uh, stuff like that. So see what pisses me off with this, these modern vehicles is that they don't come with like CD players and stuff anymore. Right. So when you're traveling down the States and you go over a mountain, you lose signal. Yeah. So what alternative, you know, put a CD into your CD player. Yeah. Then you can listen to something. I have a tape deck. So. <laughs> do you have any tapes I can borrow? <laughs> oh, I do. I do back home. I have the Moose Mountain Dakota Singers. I, I could be listening so, to them. And I'm actually trying to transfer it to uh, the computer. Oh, yeah. Because, like, I don't have a tape player. Yeah. So, but, but back to the. CD players in modern vehicles, they don't have CD players. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Like, but down in the States, like at every truck stop, you can buy audiobooks in a CD. Sure. But if you don't have a CD player, then yeah. how the hell do you play these audiobooks? No, now it's they want you to download everything. Well, yeah. And that's why I collect uh, Blu ray, Blu ray uh, discs, movie discs, and stuff. Because yeah. when the zombies attack, we're going to lose all that streaming. <laughs> Me and you and then we and Tuxie yeah. will be sitting here watching <laughs> watching watching with a physical physical movie disc. That's right. So that we can just plug in the Blu-ray player and we'll be good. Yeah. Okay. We won't be able to stream anything because the zombies <laughs> took it over. <laughs> okay. So see, people don't believe in the zombie apocalypse, but after this last pandemic, anything could happen. Oh, that's right. So who knows where monkeypox is everyone going to start act, act like monkeys although i don't know too much about monkeypox or a solar flare yeah or look at what's going on in ukraine i mean these are all topics for another day but yeah you're right if if this pandemic proved anything it's that anything can happen yeah and that it's surprising how willing the average Canadian is to give up their individual rights so rapidly, yeah. you know, in the face of a threat. But you look at, say, a pandemic, the next pandemic, what if it wiped out the entire population that controls Netflix? Right. These streaming services are going to go down. Yeah. Or so what, what if it's you... like smallpox? 80% yeah. of the people die or something like yeah. that. Well, Okay, who's running the power stations? Yeah, who's I, wa I want your 
Blu-ray player, and your discs. <laughs> and some batteries. Yeah. And an inverter. And we'll yeah. be sitting here laughing. Well, yeah. You know? So it's not just a zombie apocalypse. It could be something that just comes in and... Yeah, and we don't know. Yeah. Well, I think that's we'll the biggest We'll be sitting threat. at home in isolation with no net streaming or s- streaming services. Well, I got Blu-rays. <laughs> Ten bucks yeah. to come and watch a movie. <laughs> well, you're charging for this is a business now. <laughs> oh, if it builds up to that. So Okay. You, you know how I think thought about this? Because back going back to Mozambique. Because there a, a new like foreign family moved into our apartment building. Yeah. But they actually brought a TV and a VCR. Okay. So like literally they're probably the only ones I knew who had a TV and VCR. So, but did it have power in this building? Yeah, but you have to get the adapter. Right. And stuff like that. So, yeah. So you could actually watch a movie. So they must so, have been like the most popular family in the whole building. Yeah, at times. Right? Yeah. Everybody would want to go over there. But they don't want everyone coming in and watching but, movies all the time. So, <laughs> well, yeah. So, but rare, some rare times, you know, they come on over and watch a movie, you know, but, but well, literally, you know, if, you look at a city like Beira or even Maputo, you you can you see the effects of what could happen if something like wipes out streaming. Yeah, because back then it was pretty much the same thing. Well, I had a a huge storm go yeah. through my house. Yeah. Well, not go through my house, yeah. <laughs> but go through my area and affect my house. And um, because I'm rural. My internet comes through a cellular signal and the tower, which provided my internet, it was like probably an 80 foot or hundred foot high tower. I could see it on the horizon. Well, that's the same thing. I got back a white bear. It's a microwave tower. Right. That's exactly what this is. The storm literally took that out. Like it's no longer on the skyline. Yeah. And I no longer have internet. Yeah. So streaming. And that's when you decided to go on your trip. And yeah, I'm like, well, I'm getting out of here. I don't have internet. No, I mean, I was never a big, uh, I'm not a big TV watcher. I like, yeah. I like listening to podcasts and audio books. I like reading a lot too. Yeah. Well, uh, I read my books on my phone now. Yeah. Like I'll go to restaurants and like, I'm okay being by myself. So I'll go mm-hmm. into a restaurant and just read my book while I'm eating. Yeah. So then I don't have to talk to anyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like you still would. <laughs> well, you've seen the action yesterday, so there's uh, essentially nothing I won't say. Yeah, well. <laughs> Poor Marvin ended up drinking, so. Yeah. <laughs> hey, that was nice of you. So. Yeah, we had, uh, <laughs> for whoever's listening, the uh, we ended up going to the Legion yeah. and having a burger and uh, having a couple of beers and meeting some of the locals, your neighbors and yeah and it's uh you live in a really nice little community um, well i even met my other neighbor yeah so and you and you fed him a rum and coke well he's not he's not my neighbor he's a friend of my neighbors oh okay so uh, yeah and since my neighbors were didn't want to have a whatever their drink of choice was he, he ended up getting one <laughs> even though he was said he would so yeah yeah which was kind I of I didn't you. check his cup after to see if he drank it, though. I'm assuming he I imagine it. he did. So. I imagine he did. Yeah. And they're the older generation. Yeah. So. But they're 
hardcore drinking days like uh, Jimmy's is long gone. <laughs> okay, I don't know if I describe myself <laughs> as that, but anyway, um, I want to just say thank you very much for doing this with me. Oh yeah, I probably won't ever listen to it. So and I don't listen like <laughs> listening to myself. So I don't know what uh, you get up and podcast thumbs up or whatever. So maybe you'll get a few oh. lessons here and there so oh i'm sure some people will find it yeah. very enlightening you can listen to it while you and tuxie are on your way to bc so. <laughs> tuxie is not coming to bc she might come back with me you keep arguing about that but we both know that yeah well tuxie's uh tuxie's just right outside but, the door yeah she hasn't left your side pretty much okay thank you brennan i really appreciate it man yeah if you can't see that he shook my hand that <laughs> yeah Okay, thank you. Well, that was my conversation with Brennan. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you enjoy the podcast, I would ask that you like and subscribe and hit the notification icon on your podcast platform of preference. And of course, you can always find me on my Instagram at roadtrekkin, all one word, underscore podcast. And again, I'd like to remind everybody to be kind to one another and keep on road trekking. Bye.